Good morning, everyone. Can, is this on? Can you hear me okay? Is it on? Okay, great. Thank you. Well, uh, good to be back here at Cornerstone Christian Church with everyone. I recognize a lot of your faces. I remember uh, your faces and your kind smiles, and uh, we appreciate it. The last time we stayed, uh, came, we got to stay with um, Jim and Rosie. Uh, thank you so much for that. Um, I, th I think you guys had to like leave that day or something. I'm not remember, but... Um, it was a time before, yeah. Well, see, we remember so well. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, thank you so much. And uh, this time we got to stay with the Culbersons, right? And you guys just treated us like absolute royalty. So thank you so much. Um, uh, I've stayed, you know, in a few hotels in my life, and I never had anybody text me at 6:50 a.m. saying, "Would you like some cream for your coffee?" Or would you, what do you say, would you like some cold cereal? Can I get you anything? It was really nice, you know. So thank you so much. You guys have been very kind and, and gracious to us. And thank you to Cornerstone for allowing me to come back again. It's, it's always a privilege. Um, someone was saying that for some reason unknown to me, that folks are kind of interested in what I'm doing. So, so they said, when you get up there, could you give a one-minute kind of brief of what, you know, what's going on with you since the last time uh, you came? So um, the... If I remember right, the week prior to the last time I was here, uh, I got laid off from work, if I remember right. I don't know if I said that when I was here. I, I don't know. But anyway, it was the week prior because I, I, I remember it was on a Friday, I think, and I was praying. And then while I was praying, my watch or something went off with a text message and it was someone from Cornerstone saying, could you come and preach next week? <laughs> it was like the day I got laid off. I said, sure, I'll come next week. So, so I got laid off. Uh, I worked for a, a homeless nonprofit in Spokane. Uh, I was the, the business operations manager there, so got to work with you know, the homeless population. That was a, a real educational experience. And then uh, shortly thereafter, uh, I got hired with Moody. So I worked with Moody Aviation. So everyone knows the Moody Bible Institute. And so a lot of people don't know that a, a ministry of Moody is they have a school of aviation. They have an aviation school, and it's, it's in Spokane. And so they train... Uh, missionary pilots and mechanics and that's where it's at it's in Spokane Washington and actually the president of Moody just came on Friday to kind of give a you know once a year kind of speech and kind of see you know the operation and everything uh, so that was really cool so I've been working with Moody for the past year um, it's just a part-time position it's nothing important or anything like that uh, but I've been doing that and it's been really really awesome I can tell you for missionary aviators it's a huge and mechanics it's a, it's a lot, it's, it's much harder than I thought. You know, that process of saying, I'm going to become a, you know, a missionary pilot. It's, it's a lot. I, I had no idea. It takes years and years and years. Uh, the school alone is five years. And the first year at Moody, they don't touch an airplane. The first year is all Bible. Because, you know, you're getting people from all over. You don't know, you know, so they kind of got some quality control, you know. So they have a year of Bible where they learn Bible and, you know, things like that to kind of get them grounded. And so anyway, so it's a five-year program. And I mean, it takes a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Uh, and even when they're done, you know, you still have to go raise support. And you're doing all this work for something that at the end is not a lot of money. It's not like you're <laughs> going to make it all back or go make a bunch of money or anything. It is a tough road. So I, I have so much respect uh, for people who do that. So anyway, I work with Moody Aviation. Uh, I'm doing that for almost a year now. And uh, since I was here... Uh, last time, I've also continued on at, at TMS at the Master's Seminary, and you know I've taken a few more classes, and so I'm not quite there at the end yet. I think I'm almost halfway there, 
and it, it just feels like I'll never get there, but we'll, you know. But anyway, uh, so that's kind of what's been going on with me. Uh, my older daughter couldn't be with us this time. My younger daughter came. Uh, she's about to be a sophomore at, at Eastern Washington University. Uh, she's doing the Running Start program, and so I'm very proud of her. So anyway, um, so that, that's, that's kind of me. It's, it's boring, I guess, not a lot, so. <laughs> Say again? I'm oh, sorry. Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I always feel very loved and, and everything when I get here, so uh, I appreciate it very much. So I will uh, try to be mindful of your time. I think you said I have about 40 minutes or so, 30, 35, 40 minutes, so I'll do the best I can um, and try to, try to keep it down. So uh, let's pray. We'll start out with prayer. Dear God, thank you for our time together today. Thank you for allowing me to be here uh, in spite of my failures and my weaknesses. Uh, God, I pray uh, for all the people here that they would hear your word, they would heed your word, God, and that they would leave with a fresh and new understanding or an enhanced or a better understanding uh, of what your word says uh, regarding what it means to serve you and love you and suffer for you, Father. And I thank you for the people here. I thank you for the elders and the pastor, uh, the folks who um, exercise oversight and just want to love on the people and, and help us, help us to, to get home safely, help us to get to your arms uh, safely and sound and pure of heart and pure of spirit, Father. And I thank you for all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, is that me popping? Is there anything I'm doing or is it just, okay, I'm good. I'll just ignore it. So anyway, so good morning. Uh, it's good to see everyone again. Um, the way things um, naturally are, the way things naturally are uh, in, in the world, in some cases is, is glorious. You know, in some cases it's wonderful. Uh, look at how beautiful and perfect things like, say, fruit, right? Fruit, fruit, you know, some vegetables, you know, things like that. There are some things that it's just naturally, the way the world is, we go, man, that is awesome. Nothing that we, you know, make or manufacture, you know, candy, junk food, all that stuff, none of it really measures to just fruit, right? I mean, just a grape, you know, an orange, an apple, uh, a good crispy, you know, cucumber, a good salad. So some things naturally uh, are awesome. Um, some things are not. <laughs> some things naturally just aren't great because of the way the world is. So we all appreciate, for example, a, a beautiful and, and a well-manicured landscape, you know, uh, but left to itself, naturally, if you just let nature just run its course, it will not look that way. Uh, it would be overrun with weeds, with thorns, you know, vermin. Um, it can spark fires. Um, it takes work. It takes work to maintain order and to bring about beauty in some cases. And so life is like that. In some ways, naturally, it's great, but in some ways, it's not. And we're going to look today at First Peter and First Peter is written to us with a sharp awareness that sometimes life and the pattern and the order of life and what we experience is not always beautiful as we see it. The way of the world is naturally opposed to God and opposed to his ways. And so the recipients of this letter faced hardships, faced tremendous hardships as a result of social and governmental opposition to their faith in Christ. And so he advises believers, Peter is advising believers 
to endure suffering following the example of Christ. Following the example of Christ. So God's creation naturally rejects him and therefore will reject anything that is like him. And because of that, life is sometimes very unjust and it's very unfair. And this is something that God's people have always known. Uh, In John, for example, uh, chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, it speaks of Jesus. Is that me? I don't know if it's anything I'm doing. I don't know. Okay. Can you hear me okay? Okay, let me turn this off. Okay, so... So John, uh, chapter 1, 10 and 11, speaks of Jesus and it tells us he was in the world and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. So in one sense, the most natural thing in the world, you would go, well, the one who made the world would be welcomed by the world. But that wasn't the case. And we all know that. We all know that story. And so 1 Peter is a letter written to encourage the scattered Christians to maintain hope and suffering while bringing glory to God because of hope in Christ. It's because of hope in Christ. And so that's my aim this morning is to help you to have a God's eye view of suffering. It's to have a God's eye view of suffering. And so with that in mind, let's look together at our scripture. We'll look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. And these passages are kind of considered sort of a summation, a central summation of the book. They're kind of considered the center sort of centerpiece. Um, There's so much in Peter And we'll be referring to it where it's constantly echoing the same thing. You can go back to chapter 1, you go to chapter 4, chapter 3, chapter 2. It's just everything is pointing back to you. could almost jump from one passage to another. It's not repeating itself, but it's echoing the same idea. So 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That is God's word. And if you're like me, I read that and I say, okay, that's right and it's good and it's true. But I don't like the part about, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, rejoice. Um, if you're reviled for his name, you're blessed. Because the spirit of God rests on you. That's, it's, it's counterintuitive. If, if there's someone or something that we admire, doesn't matter what it is, usually if we carry that banner, we like to be able to say, yay, that's my, and we just want like positive, you know, as a result of doing something. We don't like the idea that, okay, I'm going to carry this banner 
and that's going to cause me trouble, that might, it's counterintuitive. Do you understand what I'm saying? So the first thing we want to look at when we look at the scripture here it says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. I, I would be making a mistake if I didn't stop really at that first word where it says beloved. So understand first what our position is in Christ as those who are his chosen, if we are saved, if God has saved us, he loves us. We are his beloved. So we can have assurance that his affections, that his good intentions, for example, in scripture it says we are saved according to the kind intention of his will. So we can say, well, if I'm saved, I know that God's intention towards me is kindness, it's benevolence, it's goodness. So God is good. And we occupy a position of those whom his affections and love are set upon. And so that's kind of the foundation, really, and we'll come back to that later. But it says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. So the first thing we need to do is anticipate, anticipate fiery trials. So when I first read this and I began to study it, my initial sort of natural inclination was to say, okay, expect that some bad things will happen because you follow Jesus. If, so kind of a surface reading, that's what we would take away is you follow Jesus, you'll have a hard time. But, you know, God is God, and so he's God, so he's worth it. So stiff upper lip, brace up, because I love Jesus, and that's, that's, what, that's really not what it's telling us, and you'll see that here in a minute. What we have to do is an, first is anticipate. And so to anticipate something is to see something as a probable occurrence, as a probable occurrence. Um, you've already thought about what you'll try to say and do. You have some kind of planned response. As the famous fighter Mike Tyson said, he said, everyone's got a plan till they get punched in the mouth. You know, they always do these interviews before the fight. You know, he said he's going to do this, and what's your strategy? You know, he said he's going to work, and do, you know, all this kind of stuff. And they always ask an athlete, so what's your, what's your strategy? You know, what do you think about this strategy? He said, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. All that's going to go out the window. So the idea is that we don't want to be that way. And so anticip anticipation is different than just expecting something. Uh, is anyone in here pregnant by chance? Well, you all came from someone who was pregnant. So... You're, you're, when it comes to a baby, you're expecting, you're expecting a baby, yes? But that entails, expecting means phone numbers, you know, packed bags, doctor's visits, vitamins, buying things that you think you'll need before the child is born. All of this is because you're anticipating as best as you can what is likely to happen so that you're ready. Uh, you don't go into labor and say, whoa, honey, I, I think a, a baby's coming. You don't do that. You've done all this stuff, and you've got your deployment bag ready, right? You have all this stuff, and it's, you've got this whole plan that you're going to do. And so in anticipation of the challenge that's going to come, there are things that we do. And so anticipation really just has two parts. There's your disposition and your preparation. So uh, does a boxer, for example, walk into the ring and say, yeah, I've been, I've been running and 
and exercising, you know, and dieting and stuff and getting up early and stuff. No, right? We've all seen, you know, a professional athlete maybe at some big event and they, they can't even stand still. You know, they walk in and they, you know, they're dancing, you know, because all of this effort has gone into this test, this trial that they're about to go through. So disposition really refers to a state of mind. That's what it means. So do not be surprised by these fiery trials. It means first, you have to anticipate. And second, you should be in a certain state of mind as a believer. You walk around with a certain state of mind. Our disposition is what drives that second part of anticipation, which is preparation. We talked about that a minute ago. If you enforce the law, you expect active opposition because there are lawbreakers, so you prepare for it. Uh, if you're a student, young folks, if you're students, you expect some kind of active assessment. There's going to be some kind of test. There's going to be something that happens so that you'll know, okay, I'm proficient. I passed this grade. I didn't pass this grade. I didn't pass this test, so I know that I need more work in that thing. And athletes are another good example. They do nothing but prepare for tests, matches, games, tournaments. All you do is practice, practice, practice. And so a good boxer, you know, steps in the ring on high alert. A good student is well prepared on test day. And a well-trained police officer arrives on scene, you know, kind of ready. You know, just with, I don't know what's happening necessarily. I don't know what I'm walking into, but I'm generally ready. And so that's the idea that believers need to be ready. We need to anticipate uh, trials. Ephesians 6.13 says, for example, therefore take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So the armor of God is not just you know, oh, I got punched in the mouth. Let me go grab the armor of God. The idea is that you have the armor of God so that you will be able. You're going to be ready. I'm ready at any given moment, as best as we can. And we talked about how Peter, the different things he says in the book, they crisscross. They, it's a constant allusions to, to one another, to different things that he says. First Peter 1.13 says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We just sung that. We just sung that. And I was thinking, I said, I hope everyone really understands what that means. And so the idea is to be ready. We do that by thinking deeply about our theology. God is sovereign. What did we sing earlier? What? What come, it says what, what comes but by his hand, I think. Is that how it's worded? What comes except by his hand. So God is sovereign is not just a cute catchphrase. Peter, the author of this epistle, thought deeply about that, and it reflects in his epistle. What Peter is teaching us is that even though some fiery trial is happening, God is in charge. Uh, I served in the military, and we, we have something called O-plans, or operations plans. And so, and, and they're, they're literally plans that are like in a vault on a shelf with numbers. You know, like O-plan 50-2, and you know, they'll say, uh, the Grand Coulee Dam was just uh, underwent a terrorist attack. 
And so there's an O plan for that. They don't go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. They go, we know where we live, we know what's going on. Grand Coulee Dam provides power to a huge portion of the nation, so that dam has to be protected. So there's an O plan for that. So if something happens or there's a threat of something happening, they literally go to the shelf and you pull off the O plan and you go, here's what you gotta do, here's what you gotta do. They sort of um, have thought about it in advance. So they're kind of ready, okay? So God is in charge. God doesn't have O plans. God does not react. God doesn't say, well, I'll be. Would you look at that? Wow. Man, I better do something. God doesn't have O plans. There's no plan B. God doesn't have contingencies. You know, theology, they teach us God does nothing of contingency. That means God doesn't go, I'll do this. Oh, now I got to do this. It may seem that way sometimes in scripture, but here's kind of a good way to think about it. This is a little excursus if this helps you. Is that um, God, you know, we always say God doesn't change, right? So part of the deeper theology behind that is that if God had better moods, we'll say it this way, if God had better moods, that means the state that he was in before the change to a better mood was a lesser state. So God doesn't improve. God doesn't go, I'm doing a little better. I'm not doing so good. I felt good yesterday. I don't feel good today. But there are things in scripture we see where we kind of say, you know, God was angry or God did this, God did that. And so the way we understand that is like this, is that light, for example, is, you know, pure sort of white light. But when a light hits a prism, then it refracts all these colors, right? You see red and yellow, green and blue. You see all these different colors that come from the one source of light. And so when God interacts with humanity, it's like hitting a prism. And so you see, you know, anger, happiness, you know what I'm saying, sadness, disappointment. You see these things. And so it appears to us sort of like God is this sort of moody. God is not moody. God doesn't change. God doesn't go, oh, man, I was really sad until I, you know, I was doing much better until I found that out. Oh, boy. I better go cheer myself up. God is not like that. God is in charge. And so don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal. And later on in verse 12 it says, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. And so the term surprise carries with it the idea of having a strong psychological reaction. It's a strong psychological reaction. Don't have a strong psychological reaction. So I was born and raised in Chicago, so if I said it in Chicago-ish, Chicagoan, we would say, quit tripping out. Like, stop freaking out. Why are you freaking out? Right? That would be probably a Chicago way of saying it. Do not be surprised. These things come for your testing as though some strange thing were happening. Fiery and intense trials are a part of this life. And so anticipate them, and so we do that by cultivating a godly disposition and preparing for them. Okay, but why? Uh, Next, we adopt Christ's suffering. Okay, we adopt Christ's suffering. Next, the apostle says, which comes upon you for your testing, in, in verse 12. And so in this context, testing means to discern or to learn or to understand the nature and character of something. 
And so that's necessary to discover whether or not something is sound. If something is sound, it means that it is trustworthy and it's reliable. Uh, How many of you have someone in your life who is trustworthy and reliable? That you could think of a person or someone, you know, your spouse, maybe you have a good friend or someone, and you go, man, that that person's always there. They're just, you know, they show up on moving day. You know, when I got to move, like, I know he's going to be there. I know she's going to show up, you know. And so the reason we say that they're faithful is because they demonstrated it when it mattered. When something was put to them, they did something that caused you to go, they're faithful. They're really reliable. They're really consistent. They're really trustworthy, whatever the case may be. And so your car broke down at 2 a.m. They were there. They found out you were sick. They called you before you called them. Do you need anything? Can I bring you something? You know, those kind of people. We all know people like that. They're awesome, awesome people. And so we speak, of, for example, of sound doctrine. You've heard that term, sound doctrine. That means the doctrine has been beat up, crash-tested, battered, hammered, put through the fire, been challenged in every way possible, and it came through fully intact. It's, it's perfect. It's complete. It's sound. It can be trusted. It's reliable. Okay, it is sound. This is why James tells us in chapter 1, 2 through 5, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing so that you will be more sound. So part of the impetus for being joyful in suffering is not just, oh boy, you know, like somehow God likes it when I suffer. God does not take pleasure in your suffering. That's not the point. The point of it is not, oh, I'd love to see you suffer. That would be horrible. It's what the suffering produces that God goes, that is what's of value. That, That is what I want. And so this leads us to really the, the weightiest part, I believe, of this passage, is that we have to apprehend God's purposes. We have to, now, what I mean by apprehend, in English, we commonly, we would say apprehend might mean, you know, like to grab someone, like I apprehended a criminal, you know, in a sense. So apprehension, in this sense, means, you know, I've really grasped it. You know, I got it. I really fully have embraced it and absorbed it. I got it, okay? So we apprehend God's purposes. And so in 4.13, it says here, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. It sounds just like James, doesn't it? To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, rejoice. Again, it's very easy to just go, okay, so I think what he's saying is, that when bad stuff happens, I'm supposed to maintain a positive attitude because, I mean, I know we bad not to have a good attitude. You know what I'm saying? We saw the life of Christ. We see the life of the apostles. We see the life of Peter himself, and he suffered. Paul, he suffered. And we see Paul talk about joy and love and faithfulness and all these things. So that's how we might be inclined to just take it. Is it, okay, Jesus suffered. I'm supposed to be like Jesus, so I'm supposed to suffer. 
okay, that's not really what's happening. It's not really what's going on. He says, keep on rejoicing so that, there's your purpose clause, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. That means, you know, loud, exuberant, really intense exultation and praise. Okay. So we have to be tested. And I want to say this too. I don't mean to talk about suffering lightly because we can all come up with something in our minds to say, oh, yeah, you know, suffering, maybe lied on, mistreated, maybe something was taken from me, something was stolen from me, you know, it could have been a life-altering thing, you know, a career was ruined, there are major, major things, so when I speak of suffering, I don't mean to speak of it lightly, you know, like, oh, come on, just keep a stiff upper lip for Jesus, that's not, that's not what I'm saying. I recognize that some suffering uh, that people endure is unimaginable, and it's intense. It's painful. Okay? And so I don't want to make light of anyone's suffering. Here's, here's an example. I, I saw an illustration one time where a man was in a classroom, and he had a small cup of water. This is a bunch of students, and he asked the student, he said, would you please come up? And he handed them the small cup of water, and he said, how much does that water weigh? And the student said, I don't know, you know, 12 ounces, you know, it's a small glass of water. And he asked another student, how much do you think it is? I don't know, 10 ounces, I, I don't know. So they gave several guesses. And the, the, the teacher said, the absolute weight of that cup of water doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the cup weighs. He said, what matters is how long you have to hold that cup. That thing could be six ounces, but holding six ounces like this you know, for 25 years or 30 years, you can't just look at that and go, come on, it's six ounces, come on. It doesn't work that way. And so suffering is like that. It's relative. Someone may go through something super intense that we can all appreciate. Someone may go through something that we may look at as relatively not a big deal, but we can't judge it that way. That is their suffering. And how long they've had to hold it is different than us. So I don't want to speak lightly uh, of anyone's suffering, and I don't mean to say that. So, so we have to be tested, though. And testing has to do with proving. It doesn't mean tested in the sense that, great, you got an 85, that's good enough. That's, again, in English, that's how we use the word test. Think of a test as, again, you've seen in sports, and they'll say well, there's a match or something like that, and they call that a test. They'll say it's a test. And so when the person wins, there's someone now, I'm sure, in some field that perhaps won an award and will say they are the greatest blank in the world. And the reason they are called that, the reason they earned that title is they had to do something. Do you understand? They had to do something that demonstrated, oh, that title applies to you. So when we say testing, it doesn't mean, I mean, how can God give you a test? Why, why is he testing you? Because he needs to know what score you're going to get on a test? That's not what testing means. Testing means to assess something to determine what the quality of it is. Does God know the true quality of your heart? 
Yes, he already knows that. Do you know the true quality of your heart? We don't know. We know to some extent. I mean, we can know, you know, I'm, I'm deceptive or I'm pride. We can know to an extent. But we don't fully know. So testing has to do with more with assessing what is the quality of something. What is that? I know. I know what it is. You don't know what it is. And Peter, of all people, knows this. So what higher praise can a man get from Jesus than blessed are you? Remember Jesus told Peter that? He said, blessed are you. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. But my Father who is in heaven revealed that to you. Oh, you know what I'm saying? Like Jesus told me that. You know, Jesus, that's right. That's high praise. If that happened to me, I'd be feeling pretty good. And in Matthew 26, right, you know, so blessed are you. In Matthew 26, I will die for you, Jesus. I will die before I deny you. 30 verses later, Jesus, who? G who? G what? Jesus. Is that some kind of sauce? G what is Jesus? Who is Jesus? I don't know. 30 verses later, from I will die for you. But that wasn't the end for Peter. The epistle that we're learning from is teaching us about endurance and faithfulness and testing. That's first Peter. Peter understands this. Do, uh, does anyone here like gold? You like gold. Come on. Don't look at me like that. You're not that humble. If you walked out of here and there was gold on the ground, you wouldn't go, oh. Right? You like gold. Does anyone here like gold? You, I'll say it this way. Does anyone here appreciate gold? Yeah, we appreciate gold. You say, oh, that's nice. It's gold. It's you know, solid. It'll last for a while. It's worth something. Gold is a nice thing to have. You would want some gold. You don't feel guilty for wanting gold because you know I want gold because it's something of value. It's not necessarily because you're greedy or anything. You just go, no, I like gold. Gold is, I know that it's pure. I know that it's precious. I know that it has value. So I want gold. I would like gold, right? We don't necessarily seek gold. You understand what I'm trying to say. You appreciate gold. You, we all value gold. We all want things that are of value to us is the point. And so it may sound like the apostle is saying, suffer. God likes it. But God doesn't take joy in your suffering any more than we take joy in heating metal to 1,947.52 degrees, which is the temperature at which gold melts. We don't, we don't, when we're dealing with gold or trying to get gold, we don't go, now here comes the good part. I'm heating it up. That's not, there's no pleasure in that. That's not the point. The point is not 
the pressure. The point is not the heating it up. That's not the point. The, what is the good part? After you heat it up, after you've done all that stuff, and then it's pure, then you go, here comes the good part. You know, watch this. All of that, watch what happens now. Then we wind up with, you know, some pure molten gold that is then, you know, sold or made into something beautiful. What we want is the result. That's the thing that's precious to us. And gold, we even call it a precious metal. Uh, we use the term the gold standard. You know, they'll say that's the gold standard of automobiles or whatever the case may be. And gold is all through scripture. The analogy of gold being pure, you know, imperishable, you know, things like that. Gold is all over scripture. It's valuable. And so on earth, what do we do for gold? We fight for it. We kill for it. We work for it. We wear it. The streets of heaven are paved with gold. What do you do with it in heaven? You walk on it. You walk on it. The thing that here we go, oh my gosh. Comparatively, you know, streets are paved with gold. Yeah, you walk on it. No one in here right now has given thought to the floor. We just, you know, it's the floor. In heaven, you walk on it. Yeah, gold. You walk on it. So the idea is that it, it is of value and it's a beautiful thing, but relatively speaking in heaven, you go, yeah, that's, that's the floor. It's made of gold. It's nice. It's gold. Because what's there is of infinitely more value. So let's ask a question then. What then is precious to God? And so please turn with me to 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3. We're going to read that together. We're going to look at verses 3 through 9. First Peter 3, beginning at verse 3. Now, uh, I try to manuscript uh, my sermons so that I'm clear and that I'm concise and that I, I don't go off on tangents and things like that. And so in my mind, uh, I'm kind of like Scrat from Ice Age. Remember that little thing that was chasing that acorn? Remember? And it was like all over the place. So when I read this, I'm kind of like that. Like I kind of go, Ooh! so I have to really slow down. Okay. So I'm going to kind of comment as we go through it. It says, now remember, what, what I want you to look for is what is of value to God and what is the purpose of suffering here? As he mentioned earlier, don't be surprised, don't be taken off guard as though something strange were happening to you, but to the extent that you share in the sufferings of Christ, you rejoice because the spirit of God and glory are resting on you. Again, when you read that, it just sounds like I'm supposed to, I mean, okay, I mean, God said that, we accept it, but it sounds like you're saying I'm just supposed to suffer for Jesus because it shows, you know, I'm tough or something like that. Not at all. Here we go. Verse 3, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. If you're here right now and you're born again, it's not because you're smart. It's not because you knew a good deal when you saw it. It's not because you're better than the other guy. It's not whatever. It's because of God's mercy causing you to be born again. Born again to what? It's a preposition. Prepositions kind of direct us from, to, in, by. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, okay. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Okay, okay. So I have an inheritance, it's imperishable, it's not going to fade away, it's permanent, it's not going anywhere, and it's reserved for me, it's reserved. Reserved in heaven for you, and what about you, verse 5, who are protected by the power of God. You are protected by the power of God through faith. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, in one sense, Peter mentioned earlier, he said uh, sort of the time of Christ is near. So he was basically saying, hey, you're going to see the return of Christ. Okay, don't let that put you off and say, yeah, but I don't know when Jesus is coming back. That might be, you know, 100 years. We don't know. A thousand years. I don't know. But here's the point. Unless you live to be over 100, everyone in this room, everyone who hears this, will see the glory of Christ within 100 years. Whether he returns or whether you die. So it isn't just sort of, I'll get it, you know, at some point if I happen to live to see Christ return. Everyone in this room, unless you live to be over 100, I hope you do, if that's God's will for you will see the glory and the revelation of Christ within 100 years of this moment right now. Because he'll either come back or we're going to die. Okay, verse 5, you are protected by the power of God. You have something reserved in heaven for you. You're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. You've had to go through things. The gold has to be purified. Okay? And here's our purpose clause, verse 7. So that, this is all happening, so that the proof of your faith must, your faith must have an object. Okay? It's not just your faith, like, oh, I have faith. Everybody has faith. Your faith must have an object. What is the object of the Christian faith? Who is the object of the Christian faith? That's right. It's, it's God. And our faith, we place our faith in Christ for the salvation of our souls. And you're about to find out why that is so important. 
verse 6, excuse me, verse 7, so that the proof of your faith being what? What does it say? It's more precious than gold. So gold, we understand the concept, right, of how gold is made and purified and how it's a value and it's pure. And that's even in scripture, you know, when it says gold, it's fine, it's pure gold. So that we, as human beings, we have something to relate to, you know, gold. Okay, it's gold, I get it, pure, valuable, it's gold. But he says, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result, to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. That's it, at the praise, praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. So the good part isn't, I'm turning up the heat, this is the fun part, this is the good part. The good part is the result. It's what's produced by that. It's what the trials produce. It's not just, oh, I'm going through a trial because, you know, God wants me to go through trials and he loves me and he just puts his kids through trials. No, no. The testing of your faith happens by fire and it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. It's the outcome. That is why Everyone's read the book of Job. Everyone knows, you know, horrible trial. You know what everybody does? We look through the book of Job and we go, yeah, but God never told them why it happened. Like he never actually said, here's why it happened. You know why? You know why? You know what the intent was of it happening? It's what Job said at the end. What did he say? I've heard about you. I know about you. But now I know you. That's why it happened. The point wasn't why this thing happened and how horrible it was and why did God, that's not the point. The point was, the end, that's why in the book it never tells you the reason God, God never answers Job and goes, here's why. Remember he said, where were you? Where were you? Where were you when I did this? Where were you when I created this? Where were you when I determined the boundary? Where were you? You're asking me what? That's why there's no explicit direct end, because the point of it is in the end, he goes, now I know you. Now I understand you. And there's no way, there's no way I would have ever come to know you or understand you in this way, much as I hate to say it, without that. It's without that. So the point is not the 1,978 degree. That's not the point. The point is, what does that produce in us? And that thing that it produces in us, that is what God finds more precious than gold. The 
the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is parable, perishable, even though tested by fire, your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What did God get from Job at the end of the book? Praise and glory and honor. That's what he got. So the worse it gets, the more faithful we are, the louder our praise can be. And the reason we have to be told this in this way is because it's counterintuitive. Everything about life, you know, tells me that if it's going well, I must be doing everything right. And if something goes wrong, then I must be, I must have done something wrong. Not necessarily. It's not necessarily true. And that's why he specifies in here when we suffer for Christ's sake, you know, not because I was an idiot, not because I did something stupid, not because I sinned, not because I'm a murderer, not because I'm a thief. He's going, now that's on you. That's, that's my wisdom and providence making sure that evildoers are punished. What he's saying is, he even mentions earlier in Peter, he says, not only when you, in essence, deserve it. Remember earlier in Peter, he says, even when someone's being unreasonable, when they're unreasonable towards you and you suffer, he said, that finds favor in the sight of God. And that has to be in scripture because I don't like that. I would not choose that. I would not go, oh yeah, that, that, I wouldn't just adopt that as a way of life. Yeah, when people mistreat you even when it's not your fault and they're being unreasonable. Yeah, you know, I just decided that I would, you know, I'm just going to look at it this way. Nobody would do that. Scripture has to tell you that. Because the idea again is that God is in control. He's not going, well, will you look at that? Man, Joseph got, Joseph wound up in prison. Man, that is a shame. That's why Joseph said later, what you intended for evil, God meant that for good. And what did God get from Joseph in the end? Praise and glory and honor. And so if you're here today, maybe you're new to Christianity, God has done something great for us. And every Christian, every genuine Christian is aware of this. Because of what he has done for us, because of what he's still doing in us, what he's still doing through us, we serve him and we fall short all the time. But he has proven that he has the words of life and there's nowhere else we can turn. We look at Jesus himself, and we marvel at his sacrifice, at his faith, at his commitment. You know, we look at him and we admire and honor the way he lived, you know, during his time on earth. And Peter is trying to get us to understand that it's not beneath you. It's not, there's something's not wrong if you find yourself suffering. The only difference with well, there's a hundred differences, but in a sense, with Christ suffering on a human level, as we have the benefit of, of, uh, of looking at it after the fact. So we can look at it kind of a bird's eye view and go, well, I understand why all this is happening. And so, you know, it's, it's easier for us to swallow because we go, oh, I, I know the grand reason why this is occurring. So, yeah, it's unjust, but something good comes out of it. And so when we say we are saved by the blood of Christ, 
it, it doesn't mean like the, there's, like the blood is magical. It means that the question is, what produced that blood? What caused his blood to be shed? In terms of what Peter is talking about, suffering, purity, endurance, obedience, faith, selflessness, giving himself for people who rejected him. So think about the purity of that sacrifice. And when we say the blood of Christ, it doesn't just mean like, oh yeah, well, I mean, he's, you know, crucifixion, I mean, we all know Christ is not the only one to be crucified. Crucifixion was the method you carried out capital punishment. He was not the only one who was crucified. So why does his sacrifice, why is he different than someone next to him on a cross? Again, not only this. I mean, he's divine. That, that's a whole you know, theological thing. But again, because what is producing that? What produced that sacrifice? When his blood was spilled, in him, what produced that? The pure, what does scripture say? It says he did it for the joy that was set before him. It was the joy set before him. It was a sacrifice given of pure, absolute love. And it is for that reason when we say the blood of Christ that's what we're really saying is like, what produced that blood? So when we say here, may be found to result in the praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What makes that praise and glory so valuable to God? Because God is going, this right here produced that. That is pure. That is incredibly pure. That is coming from a place of, it even says exuberant you know, exaltation and rejoicing at Christ. So God is not offering us a consolation. He's not going, oh, you suffered? Oh, well, here, I'll pay you back. He's offering restoration. We get back something better than anything we lose because the difficulties burn the truth in us about what is actually of value. When God is our supreme joy, we don't just enjoy the afterlife better. We enjoy life better. That is why, even though, again, you look at the life of Peter, you look at the life of Paul, who would want to live Paul's life? I would not want to live Paul's life. Do you have any indication in the writings of Paul that he's miserable, unhappy? Do you have any? There's no indication of that. He's just joy, right? He's joy, joy. I want the best for you. I want the best for my Christian brothers and sisters. And it's all love and joy. And you're thinking, man, you're in jail. You're writing this from jail because he understood that. He understood that. That's why he said when you suffer, remember he said, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ. Remember? He's saying, put on the, think about it the way Christ thought about it. Not just, man, this isn't fair, but think about it in terms of 
I understand what God is doing. He's producing something that when it comes out of me, he's going to go, that's pure. That's precious. That's what's happening. So God is not offering us a consolation. Go ahead and suffer for me. Don't worry, I'll pay you back. He's offering us restoration. Jonathan Edwards once said, God is glorified not only by his glory being seen. You know, we can see the glory of God in the things that are made and in the world around us. He said he is glorified by his glory being rejoiced in. And rejoicing in his glory brings him glory. It's not enough to say, I guess he's God, so I have to, you know, knuckle under. You have to see God's beauty. Glorifying God does not mean obeying him only because we have to. It means to obey him because we want to, because we're attracted to him, because we delight in him. Impurity and delight in God don't go together. They don't go together. The more we delight in him, the more our praise to him and our glory to him and our life for him, it becomes more pure. And the more pure it is, he goes, that is what I want. That is what brings me glory. Look at the history of Israel. Look at the terrible, <laughs> terrible things that happened to Israel. And what did God tell him all throughout scripture? He goes, I'm doing that because you're my people. And you're not pure. And if I left it up to you, you won't fulfill your, you're not going to be pure. You want to be an idolater. You want to be an adulterer. You want to worship pagan gods. You, that's what you want to do. But because of my mercy and love for you, I made you mine. And so since I made you mine, I'm going to complete in you the work I started in you. And in the end, you will be pure. You are going to be what I want you to be. Because that's the bride. That is what, remember that precious blood of Christ? That's what that blood deserves. That blood is not cheap. So since it is of such tremendous value, he goes, that's worth something. And I'm not going to dishonor my son. I'm not going to dishonor my son by him having something less than what he ought to have. But the way it is, naturally, this world, its distractions and addictions and its idols and the crises and the wars and the sin and our own sin and wickedness around us, they pollute us and they pollute our service and worship. And so we have to be purified for our sake. And unfortunately, we don't get to decide how. God is all wise. That's why Peter is saying, even when you're suffering because of someone's injustice, he's saying, rejoice. God is not surprised. Stop acting like some weird thing has happened. Like, what? I don't understand. What's going on? He goes, what do you mean you don't understand? Have you ever read the Bible? Have you ever, what do you mean, like, oh, why is this happening? Have you never read, did you never read the Bible and go, oh, like, Joseph deserved that? Like, Job asked for that? Jesus deserved that? Paul, like, deserved that? 
that's, that's what Peter deserved? I mean, is that... And all of a sudden when it gets to me, I go, how dare you? That's not fair. That's not right. Count it all joy. And so in a conversation with who else but Peter, I'm closing, he said this. It says, then Peter said to him, look, Remember, this is early Peter. This is prior to writing 1 Peter. That's why it's cool, because you can see Peter's growth. Remember, the things that he's saying, Peter has lived this stuff. He knows intimate encounters with Christ. God gave me revelation about who he is. Jesus commended me for it. You know, all these positive things. And then later on, Peter's the same one who went, I don't know who. I don't know that guy. What are you talking about? Me? I don't know that guy. Peter, of all people, understands the human heart is deceitful. It's deceptive. It's very, very deceptive and deceitful. And so he understands very well the necessity of trials and purity. Peter said to him, look, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said, truly I say to you that you who have followed me it's truly, I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. So when you understand it in this way, you understand this is not salvation by works. He's not saying, well, if you give up all this stuff, what you get in return is eternal life. So you have to do a lot of stuff to get eternal life. What he's saying is these are all difficult things, leaving father, mother, lands, houses, farms, leaving it. You know, these are trials. These are difficulties, giving up things. So what he's saying is, remember he said that the testing of your faith produces something. So what he's saying is these things are indicative of trials that you have, and what that produces in the end is the praise and glory and honor toward Christ that happens as a result of salvation. He's not saying, you know, do all this stuff, and then you get, God will save you because, yeah, you made the appropriate sacrifice. Good on you. will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. Peter even said earlier, didn't he say? He said it's an inheritance. He said it's an inheritance reserved for us. And I'll close with this. It fits to glorify God. It not only fits reality, because God is infinitely and supremely praiseworthy, but it fits us as nothing else does. All the beauty we have looked for in art or faces or places, all the love we have looked for in the arms of other people is only fully present in God himself. And so in every action by which we treat him as glorious as he is, whether through prayer, singing, trusting, 
obeying, or hoping, we are at once giving God his due in fulfilling our own design. That is what we're to do. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your word. Thank you for our time together. Father, I ask that you would strengthen me, strengthen everyone here, everyone in the sound of my voice, not to take an attitude of just enduring endless suffering as though that that somehow makes you happy. It doesn't. Help us to understand, to apprehend your purpose, that what you are doing is to produce in us the true praise and the true glorification and honor that is due to your name and that enables us to fulfill our ultimate purpose in loving you and glorifying you forever. Amen.